Welcome to Park Church. We're glad that you're here. My name is Matt. I am uh, the associate pastor here on staff, and it is my privilege and my pleasure to be able to really continue our path through this series called The Story. And if you're, if you're new or if you just haven't been around all too much, haven't gotten caught up on where we've been, I'll catch you up. But before we do, I just want to introduce the idea of story. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but it's true that we all live out of and we live into a story. We all live out of a story. We all come from somewhere. We all have a history. Our family, the situation that happened there, um, it shapes us. Whether it was like a storybook family or whether it was a family that was tough or you suffered tragedy um, or there was some big thing, some big move that happened when you were a kid, right? In a way, we're all living out of the story that we came from. But then on the other hand, we're also all living into a story. And many times this story is self-written, right? We want to be the only person in our family to graduate college, and that's what we shoot for. Or we want to be married by 30 and have a white picket fence and 2.5 kids and a dog named Roscoe, right? These are stories that we try to live into. But then there's cultural stories, bigger stories that we're a part of whether or not we know them. And so one of them is like the American dream type story. You work hard, you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and you get ahead in life. But when that doesn't happen, um, it's really disappointing. Or there's another story that's really told by like our culture, and I would just call it the consumerist story. And this story is the one where you just use your resources and your money to buy a bunch of stuff and get yourself a nice house and all that sort of stuff, and then you're, then you're happy. Then you find fulfillment. That's where you find life. And it, 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 it's not true. It, it doesn't work like that. The audacious claim that we are making in this series, and we're making it because we believe our faith demands it, because we believe the book that our faith is based on, the Bible, Scripture, demands it. The audacious claim that we are making is that the story that the Bible tells is actually the one true story of the world. True with a capital T, the one true story of the world. Not that other stories aren't true, of course, right? But this story, um, it relativizes every other story. It puts other stories in their place uh, so that either stories are competing with this one true story or, and our hope is this for each and every one of us, that your individual story <clears throat> would be able to find its true meaning, its true purpose, its true fulfillment in this one big story. And so what we're doing in this series is helping you know what the one true story of the world is, the story of the Bible, so that you can live it, so that you can live into it, and then so that you could tell it to someone else who doesn't know it, so that they can know it, so that they can live it. And so what we've done in this series is we've divided the big story of the Bible up into six different sections. Think of it like a play with six different acts, um, and they're all kind of represented by these symbols. And so far, we started uh, two weeks ago with this, which is, uh, this is not a cheat code for Contra. This is, um, this, is, this is a down arrow. And this is meant to represent God's creation of the world. And before we get into that, just take a step back from creation for a second. Think about this. Why would God actually go through all this trouble? Why would God do all this? Why are we here? And the only answer I can figure out, and it's the answer I think the Bible actually gives, is that... Um, God is perfectly good, he's perfectly loving, perfectly selfless, perfectly self-giving. What, what would be the very best thing a God like that could do? It's to create a world with beings in it who can be the recipients of his love, of his 
goodness. And that's, that's the why. That's why we're here, to be recipients of God's, of God's love, of, of, of who God actually is. That's why the entire universe exists. Uh, but two weeks ago, we kind of launched into that, um, talking about how God is like a king who speaks out over his kingdom and what he says is done. And with the word, God creates everything. He creates the world and everything in it and creates it good. And at the center of that creation, he creates human beings, man and woman, humanity. Uh, and doesn't say that we're good. He says that we're very good. And what we are made for, uh, this is from Genesis 1 and 2, what we are made for is for... Uh, key relationships. And the first, this is the most important, is with God. We were meant for fellowship, for friendship, for union, for connection with God, to know God and to be known by God, to walk with him and talk with him and see him, just like they did in that story uh, in the Garden of Eden, Adam Eve. That's what we were made for. But we were also made to be in harmony with ourselves, not to be ashamed of what we are, but to be um, fully human and to, and to be proud of that because of we're God's creation. We bear God's image in some way. And we're also made to be uh, in harmony, in love with one another, not, not, not fighting, but in love with one another. Um, and then we're also meant to be at peace with our, with our work, with the world around us, so that when we burn our energy, it doesn't feel like toil, but it feels like fruitfulness. It feels like life. That's what we were made for. And the word that we'll use to kind of capture all that is flourishing. We were made to flourish. That's what God, that was God's intention. But as we learned last week, um, you know, like a, uh, like a game show X buzzer, right? Um, it didn't work out that way. And if you were here last week, you know the story, but if not, you probably know the story anyway. Um, Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve, uh, tree that God said, don't eat from that tree. And some talking snake said, no, no, it's okay. And Adam and Eve decide that they know better than God and they're going to live kind of without God and they're going to eat from that tree. And they eat from the tree and uh, they lie about it. <clears throat> and that's the moment where sin, where the infection of sin enters into humanity. And it's, it's not just the story of Adam and Eve, but it's our story. It's the story of human rebellion, deciding as people that we're better off without God, we can decide for ourselves. That's where that story ends. And um, where that story goes, what happens next is that Adam and Eve get expelled from the garden. And think about, think about that for a second. They get expelled from the garden. They get kicked out. And what that means is that they're uh, kicked out of God's presence. They're far from God when they're meant to be near God. Um, they can't know him, right? He's hidden and their relationship with God has been broken. It's been broken because the infection of sin has ruined everything, the consequences of which are death, death through all those broken relationships. And so at the end of Genesis 3, kicked out of the garden, that's where humanity is. And it's at this moment that God has a hypothetical choice. What is God going to do? He could scrap the whole thing, end the world, end the universe. He was fine without it, he would, and he would be fine without it. That's one possibility. He doesn't do that. We're all sitting here. Um, he could decide to give up on humans, right? Stick with the animals. They're fluffy. They're furry. They, uh, you know, they cuddle. They don't talk back when they grow up, right? Stick with animals. He could have been happy with that, right? God could have um, forced his will on us, taken away our freedom, right? forced his will on us and made us slaves or worse, made us 
robots. He could have wiped out humanity and formed a new race of intelligent beings called Tumans. That's humans too. <laughs> That's kind of funny, right? No, but it's kind of a neat idea to think about. Why didn't he? He didn't do that. What he does next, what he does next shows us something so fundamental, so foundational about who God is, about who the God of this story actually is. It is like a thread that ties together every single page of the story. It is like a thread that ties together every single page of the Bible. And here's the thread. God makes a promise that he keeps regardless of the cost. God makes a promise that he keeps regardless of the cost. And when he does that, he proves himself entirely faithful, entirely trustworthy. Now, I don't know where you come from in faith, what your relationship with God or, or no God is like, but wouldn't it be nice if this were actually true? If God were actually like this, entirely faithful, entirely trustworthy? Because let me tell you, in this world today, isn't it the case that increasingly more and more, it's becoming harder to trust others, right? I mean, just think about it. We're supposed to be able to like trust our leaders, let's say the government, and unless you've been under a rock for the last few weeks, right? Like, it's becoming increasingly hard to trust these guys and girls. We're supposed to be able to trust the institutions that support this world, the financial institutions. And as you know, a few years ago, that didn't, they weren't so trustworthy. Um, the universities to teach our kids and not to take money from us to put, you know, the parents of, or the kids of celebrities in, right? We're supposed to be able to trust um, the companies that give us jobs and that take care, and, they're becoming harder and harder to trust. But on a more personal level, it's hard to trust people. A lot of people come from homes where it's hard to trust your parents, unfortunately. Something, something, it's hard to trust them. Maybe some of you come from marriages or used to come from marriages where you can't trust your husband, you can't trust your wife. They've, they've broken your trust. Or maybe, maybe a friend has proven themselves untrustworthy, right? They've let you down. Maybe you have let yourself down. And the cases we have all let ourselves down. It's becoming increasingly hard to live in a world where we can't trust people. Wouldn't it be nice if the story was true and if God was actually faithful, actually trustworthy, and actually true like this? The story that we believe the Bible tells and that we are talking about says that he absolutely is. And he has redemption uh, to come. And so what is it that he does? What he does is he picks one person out and he leans down to him and he says, through you and through your people, I am going to fix all of this. I'm going to fix all of this through you and through your people. And um, the rest of the Bible from like Genesis 12 onwards, it is basically the unfolding, the story of that promise coming to fruition. Now, this morning, we're not going to talk about all of it, but we are going to talk about the part from after Adam and Eve all the way to before uh, the New Testament. That's called the Old Testament, right? There's 929 chapters in the Old Testament. The first two weeks, we covered three chapters. So I have 926 chapters to cover. So I'm going to start, I'm going to start talking exceptionally fast. Um, <laughs> for a lot of us, though, the Old Testament, I know this, the Old Testament is scary, it's daunting, it's mysterious. Um, you've tried to read it, you've gotten in it, and you've gotten stuck. 
because there's all kinds of weird things and there's places you don't understand and it's just very confusing and it's a big story. It's hard to parachute into. Um, and you're reading maybe, or maybe you're just hearing about it, and you've heard that the God that we meet there seems a little different than the God we meet in the New Testament. It's a little scary. Maybe he's an angry, vengeful God. There's fire, there's brimstone, right? There's, um, there's all these laws that are very harsh and very confusing. There's lots of violence. Uh, there's lots of things that offend our 21st century ears. It's not politically correct, and it's not safe for your kids to read, right? That's like the Old Testament. What do we do with it? What's going on in that story? What, what sense are we to make of it? This morning, uh, the goal is really to answer that question. And so what does God do? This is what God does. He picks one man, and he says to him, said to Abram, go, go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land that I will show you. That's how it, that's how it begins. That's how it begins right there. This word go, right? It's an arrow pointing that way. This is the launching of God's rescue plan. This is God's plan to save things moving forward. But it starts with this promise, this one man, Abram. And we don't know um, a lot about Abram except for these few details. We know he's from a place called Ur, which was originally in southeast Iraq. That's where he grew up. At this point in the story, his father has taken him to a place called Haran, which is on the uh, Turkey-Syria border. And it's just kind of an interesting contrast that the faith that we're all a part of comes from an area of the world that we have such a difficult time with, right? This was, this was an Iraqi man who God is speaking to on the Syria-Turkey border. And um, he's married. He's married to a woman named Sarah. All we know about Sarah is that she uh, can't get pregnant. She's barren. And he's 75 years old. She's about 75 years old. And their days of having kids are over. It's done. They're not going to have kids anymore. And yet God says to him, um, get up, go to a place that you've never seen before. It's quite a, quite a leap of faith for Abraham and Sarah to obey. He's got some, shepherd, um, some, some, some people, some sheep, some herds, but they get up and they go. But here's the promise. Here's the promise that God makes to him. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is a huge promise and there's huge promises in it. Not least of all for Abraham and Sarah, there's a promise of a child. And when he says, I will make of you a great nation, what God means by this, and it's clarified in further reiterations of this promise, is that you will have a child through your offspring, through your children. For Abraham and Sarah, this is hard to believe. She's barren and they're 75 years old. The story of how they end up having a kid is too long to tell right now, but just keep reading from Genesis 12 onward and you'll see the story. But they had to wait 25 years to have a child. 25 years they had to wait. They had to believe in God, even though they didn't see any evidence to the contrary. 25 years. But finally, they have a child. His name is Isaac. And Isaac has a child and his name is Jacob. And Jacob has like over a dozen kids, and um, Jacob gets renamed Israel. That's where the name Israel comes from. And then um, Israel has a bunch of kids, and there's tribes, and it's all of a sudden, it's a great nation. God makes good on his promise to make him a great nation. Israel is the people who come from Abraham. But it's not just that promise. It's also the promise to make your name great. And in case you didn't know, 4,000 years later, we uh, in Monmouth County, New Jersey, are talking about an Iraqi citizen from 4,000 years ago, whose name is Abram, Abraham. 
His name has been made great. Jews, Christians, Muslims all take Abraham as a father of the faith. God has made good on this promise. But the biggest promise and the hardest one to get to is this one. You will be a blessing and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You will be a blessing. And through you, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Abraham and his people, Israel, are blessed in order to be a blessing. And this is something that's fundamental about how God works, about how God's promise works. It is always from one to the many, from one person to the many people. God could have, I suppose, decided to beam his blessing down onto all people uh, at once all over the earth, right? He could have done that. But that's almost never the way that God works. It's one person for the sake of the many, uh, from the particular to the universal. And it's not, notice, so that Abraham and Israel could be happy, so that they could be good, so that they could have what other people don't have. That's not what it's for. It's to be a blessing. It's, it's on behalf of, for uh, the rest of the world. And this is a dynamic that I think a lot of people don't see when they read the Old Testament. What they see there is a bunch of seemingly random stories about this group of people who for some reason God is connected with, but it's very confusing, or, you, or it's read like, well, it's nice that God has a people. And the fact is, it is nice that God has a people, but God has a people in order to be a blessing for all other people. And so what God is doing throughout the story of the Old Testament is shaping and forming and gathering a community of people through whom he will do something. He has a purpose, a mission. They are infused with a vocation. Um, one helpful way to think about this, and this is an image that comes right out of the Old Testament again and again, is God is like a potter who has a lump of clay. And he, over the course of their history, the thousands of years of their history, he is shaping them into um, an instrument that can be used for his purpose, to bless all people. And so the story of the Old Testament is the story of God again and again um, putting his hands on the people, having intense interactions with them, shaping them, molding them, reworking them, reworking them. Sometimes there's lumps and he has to rip that part out and he has to reshape it and reshape it. God is getting his hands dirty, not to create a pretty vase, but to create an instrument that he could use for his purpose to bless the rest of the world. That's that's, that's what God is saying to Abraham here through this promise. I'm going to pick you and your people out of all the rest of the people uh, through whom to bless the rest of the world. And so blessed to be a blessing, it's a huge idea, it's a huge promise, and it ought to ask, um, raise one important question, and the question is, what does it mean to actually be a blessing? What does that word blessing actually mean? And on one hand, we probably all have a general sense of what it means, right? To be fortunate, to get the thing, um, you know, to pull the prize out from underneath your seat and find out that you won the new thing, right? Or on Oprah, like, you get a car, you get a car, right? Like, hashtag blessed, right? We all kind of know what blessing means. Um, in the Bible, though, in uh, the first few chapters of Genesis, we get a very particular meaning for what, Genesis, uh, for what blessing means that informs this use here. In the very first chapter of Genesis, the story where God is creating everything, there's two moments where God blesses what he does. The first is after he creates the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, he takes a step back, looks at them, and he blesses them. And do you remember what he says? He says, be fruitful 
and multiply. Be fruitful and increase in number. And then later, he creates all the land animals and he creates humans. And he takes a step back and he says, very good. And he blesses them. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and increase in number. When God uses the word blessing here, what he means behind this is fruitfulness, is abundance, abundance of life, life the way that it was meant to be lived, full of, full of growth, full of um, good things, full of uh, nurture, full of hope, full of light, full of joy. It, it means flourishing. So what God intends to do through Abraham and his people is, is, is cause the rest of cause the rest of the world to flourish. That's what, that's what he means by that. But when you put the pieces together, right, the actual concrete pieces of what does this blessing actually entail in like real terms, um, let's put it together, right? At the end of Genesis 3, you have humanity, a uh, broken relationship with God, God unknowable, far from God, in need, and dying because of their sin, because of the infection that has gotten to them. That's the situation that they're in. And so what the world needs is for those two things to be fixed, for those two things to be reversed. And so when God says that I will bless you in order to be a blessing, what he means is that through you, uh, your sin, which is killing humanity, will be dealt with, and people will be restored in their relationship with me. People will be able to know me again. And so when God uh, forms this instrument, Israel, in his hands, what he's doing is uh, through them, their job, their vocation is to deal with sin, not just for themselves, but on behalf of the world, and to show God to the world. And the way you're going to remember that from now on, and it's cheesy and silly, but it's to deal with sin and to reveal God to the world. To deal and reveal. And it rhymes. It's easy to remember. Um, that's what Israel is for. And so when you break down the entire story of the Old Testament and you read it through this lens, here's kind of the way some of this is supposed to work. And let's start with the reveal God to the world type thing. Um, the first way that they were supposed to do this is that they worshipped one God. One God. That's it. All the other peoples back then had multiple gods. Gods and goddesses you know, of the fields, of the air, of reproduction, everything. Multiple gods and goddesses. The people of Israel, the Jewish people, were to have one God. Do you remember like CCD or um, uh, Sunday school learning about the Ten Commandments, right? Um, do you remember what the first two commandments were? The first one was, I am the Lord your God who, who brought you up out of slavery, who freed you. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. And the second commandment was, you shall not make an idol. You shall not make something to worship. One God. The effect that that was meant to have in that world was to show the rest of the world who the one true God actually was, to make it so that Israel stood out from the rest of the world. They weren't, they weren't like everyone else. Along with that came a law, which is kind of weird for us to read, and it's very confusing, and we don't follow a lot of it. But what that law was meant to do uh, was to show them how to live, to keep them living as flourishing a life as they could, but it was also made... Uh, there to make them stand out from the rest of the world, to make them stand out from their neighbors. Because they did things like they didn't work seven days a week, they worked six days a week. And they had circumcision, and they had different food laws and different purity laws, and all these different laws. And it was made to make them so that they weren't like everyone else. And then along with that also came land, the promise of land. God was going to give them a holy land just of themselves, flowing with milk and honey, just west of the Jordan River. 
And at the center of that land was to be a city, and at the center of that city was to be a temple, a city on a hill from which God's radiance, God's light was to flow out into the rest of the world. And so that when anyone came to Jerusalem, came to the temple, they could meet God's presence right there in the temple. Stood out from the rest of the world. And then the last thing was that they were also supposed to live as a people without a king. They were supposed to live without a king. Why? Because God was their king. They didn't need a human king because they had God. God freed them out of slavery. A human king didn't. But if you know the story of the Old Testament, you know that in each of these things that were meant to show God to the world, in each of them, they failed miserably. They all, they all went the wrong way. And let's just kind of go backwards through them. The king, right? That was the first thing. For a while, they were kind of self-governed and it kind of worked, and then it didn't work. Um, and they looked around at the other nations, and they saw that this nation has a king, and that nation has a king, and they're kicking butt and now they're threatening us. We need a king too, God. And God says, no. And the people of Israel said, no, we know better than you, which is the same exact thing Adam and Eve did. We know better than you. Give us a king. And God relents and says, all right, but you're not going to like this. Trust me. And they didn't like it. For the most part, it went totally wrong. Um, The land and the temple, the land was supposed to be a place where people could come to and um, and be cared for by God, and come to know God, and it became a place of abuse, of oppression of the poor, and the fatherless, and the widow. It became a place um, that killed people rather than lifted up life, and at the center of it was a temple that was a place, for one thing, um, of idol worship, but more importantly, um, it was a place of vain glory. It, It didn't turn out to be the way it was supposed to. And with that, the law was something that was misunderstood and not really followed, and it was unfairly applied to people. But the real sin of Israel, the real human um, rebellion that took place in Israel was they couldn't stick with the one God thing. They just couldn't get it right. You know, right after Moses gives the Ten Commandments, he goes back up the mountain to talk with God again, and the people are gathered at the bottom of the mountain, and they're kind of wondering, where did Moses go? They start to get a little bit anxious, and so what they do is they collect all the gold, they melt it all down, and they form this image of this uh, calf, this golden calf, and they start to worship it right then and there. And for the rest of their life together, they were plagued by this, by worshiping not the one God, but multiple gods. And so it was that the people who were meant to deal with sin became so infected by it that they were no good to deal with sin any longer. That's the story of the Old Testament. The way they were meant to deal with sin, um, this is a little complicated, and this is a broad overview of this. Uh, You can read more about it in uh, the book of Romans in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians especially. But here's how sin was meant to be dealt with. Israel, God's people, was meant to be the focal point for where sin was um, known, for where sin was located. Part of the law was to say, this is sin, and that's not, and that's not. And so when you say that, you're defining what sin is. When you define sin, you kind of put a border around it, kind of a fence, a boundary, right? And you kind of get it all in one spot. When you step over that boundary, step over that border, you transgress. That's where that word comes from. But when you get sin located, focus on one place, then you could deal with it. Then you could heal it. Then you can cure it. Then you could root it out. Then you could forgive it. Then you could atone for it. 
And the way that they meant to do this was to take sin into their own hands and lay it on the back of a goat or a bull and, and lead it out or have it slaughtered so that it dies rather than those who did the sins. That's how the sacrificial system was more or less meant to work in those days, except when the people who were meant to deal with sin are dealing in sin, dealing out of sin, nothing works, it all falls apart. That's the, that's the situation that, um, that Israel is in. That's, that's, that's the situation that Israel was in um, as their life goes on, and you see it again and again and again throughout their history. And so just to look at the timeline of the people, right? Um, Abraham is first, and Abraham has that son Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 tribes. Uh, they all go down to Egypt because of a famine, and while they're there, they get enslaved by the Egyptians. Moses comes along. God frees his people through Moses. They go back up to the promised land, and once they get into the promised land, they kind of rule themselves, and it's kind of a mixed bag, and then finally they get a king, and the king is named Saul, and Saul's kind of good, but kind of bad, and then their next king is named David, and David's wonderful. He wrote Psalms, and he liked women too much, and he's kind of a mixed bag, and then Solomon came along, David's son. He was super wise, and he built the temple, but he really liked women, and he really liked idols too, and then after Solomon, the Israelites have another great idea. They say to God, God, we know better than you. Rather than one kingdom, let's have two kingdoms. And they break up into two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which takes the name of Israel. The southern kingdom takes the name of Judah, one of the tribes. And then for hundreds of years, that's how the people of Israel lived, as two separate kingdoms. And throughout that time, God keeps sending people to Israel called prophets. People like uh, Ezekiel and, and Elijah and Jonah. Those are my three kids' names. And um, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Micah. He sends these people to say to the Israelites, to say to their kings, to say to their priests, to say to their leaders, and to say to the people, you have to stop. You were meant to show God to the world, and everything you're doing has the opposite effect. You were meant to deal with sin, and you are just as sinful, just as sick as everyone else. You have to stop or else. You have to turn around or else. And after hundreds of years or, or else, God finally gives them or else. And Assyria comes in 722 BC, conquers the northern kingdom, slaughters most of them, takes them away. You never hear from them again. Wiped off the face of the earth. Uh, 120 years later, about 600 BC, Babylon comes, conquers the southern kingdom, takes them away into slavery. And they're uh, not in slavery, in exile and captivity. And they're in exile in Babylon for 70 years. And for 70 years, they're trying to survive as God's people in this captivity. Finally, another king comes, conquers Babylon, frees the, the Israelites, except they'd been there for 70 years. That was home. Multiple generations of people were born in Babylon. So most of them didn't leave. Most of them wanted to stay there. Some of them uh, left and went elsewhere, and then only a tiny remnant of people ended up coming back to the Holy Land, coming back to Jerusalem. And part of that was Ezra and Nehemiah, and they tried to rebuild the temple. They tried to make it happen again. It was just kind of a weak, flimsy, hungry, starving remnant of God's people. It was very sad. And then, and then for 400 years B.C., silence. Just nothing. And in those 400 years, God is left with a decision. The same decision that he was left with after the garden, after Adam and Eve, 
Humanity is broken in their relationship with God. Humanity is lost. God is unknown and unknowable. Who's going to show him to the world? Um, Sin has infected everyone. It is deep and it is dark. And what is God going to do? Is he finally just going to destroy everything and go back to just him? Is he going to wipe out humans and go back to the animals? Is he going to um, wipe out Israel and say, I'm going to choose a new people to show myself to the world and to deal with sin? Is that what I'm going to do? God is a God who makes a promise and keeps it regardless of the cost. That's who God is. And so God doesn't do any of those things. What God decides to do is, I just need a little remnant. I just need a little bit of people who can do this. Actually, no, no, no. I don't just need a little bit of people. I just need one person. I just need one faithful Israelite who can actually listen to me and obey me and be faithful to what I'm calling him to, who can actually show God to the world in a way that the world can understand, who can actually deal with sin, not with the blood of bulls and goats. That's all I need. And maybe for 400 years, he's looking around and he can't find one. He's looking around saying, who can actually listen to me and obey me and be faithful? Because for thousands of years, no one could do it. Who could do that? Who can actually show me to the world? Who can do that? Who has big enough shoulders, strong enough to actually bear the weight of the sin, not just of Israel, but the sin of the whole world? And he looks around and he can't find anyone to do it. And he looks to his left and then he looks to his right and he says, you're up. The time has been fulfilled. You're up. And that's the story of Israel. That's the story so far. And the thing is, it is, it is just the appetizer to the main course. It's the appetizer for the main event. Our invitation to you is to come back and, and hear the rest. But if you are someone who, like I said before, uh, has had a hard time because people have let you down, because you can't find people to trust in, our invitation to you is to come back and hear about the God who does not let down, who is faithful and trustworthy. Come back and hear about how you can come and live the story with this God who is absolutely faithful to keep his promises regardless of the cost. Come back next week and hear about who God ended up sending. If you've met him, you know. If you haven't met him yet, just wait. He will change your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are faithful above all else. That when you create a world good with us at the center, very good, you will not stop until it is renewed, until it is restored. Lord, we are not faithful. Um, The story of Adam and Eve, the story of Israel, uh, our current story bears that out. But you are faithful and we thank you. We pray that for each of us, regardless of what our image is of you that we have coming into um, life, we pray that you would continue to strip away the things that aren't real, to strip away the things that are false, so that we could actually know you, so that we could actually know your story, so that we could live it. Father, for the ways that we have been uh, damaged, 
the ways that we have been let down by people, or the ways that our sickness has infected us and caused ruin. We pray for continued healing. We pray for, for you to continue to heal us um, from within, to renew our minds, to call us to believe in you and to follow you in new ways. Show us again who you are. Lord God, we, uh, we thank you for this story. It's not just a story in a book somewhere, but it's our story as well. Show us as time moves forward, as we move forward in this series, show us what it means to live in it. And next week, Lord, um, whether or not we've ever met the one who you sent to show us who you are and to deal with sin, we pray that you would lead each of us to meet him. And in his name we pray. Amen.